You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is sponsored by Antioch University's Low Residency MFA Program in Creative Writing. Want to learn how to write fiction, nonfiction, poetry, young adult, screenwriting, or playwriting in a two-year program that's mostly remote? Apply by visiting antioch.edu slash apply. Hi, my name is Elle Johnson, and I wrote a book called The Officer's Daughter, a memoir of family and forgiveness. Elle Johnson is a TV writer. Her credits include Law and Order, CSI Miami, Ghost Whisperer, and The Fosters. One of Elle's career highlights came on The Glades, where she wrote and produced an episode set in the world of NASCAR that featured nine actual race cars, four champion drivers, and one monkey. She was co-showrunner on Netflix's Self Made, inspired by the life of Madame C.J. Walker, which won an NAACP Image Award for Best Limited Series. Most recently, she was an executive producer on the Amazon original series Bosch, based on the Michael Connelly detective novels. Originally from Hollis, Queens, Elle graduated from Harvard College, studied writing on a Rotary Scholarship at the University of East Anglia in England, and has taken numerous classes at UCLA Extension Writers Program. She was a finalist for UCLA's 2015 Allegra Johnson Prize in Memoir Writing. The Officer's Daughter is her first book. In The Officer's Daughter, we follow Elle Johnson at 16 years old. Her 16-year-old cousin Karen had her face blown off at point-blank range in a robbery at a Burger King in the Bronx. Elle comes from a family of Black law enforcement officers. Her uncle, Karen's dad, was a homicide detective. Her father was a parole officer. The aftermath of Karen's murder, the cross-country manhunt spearheaded by the NYPD and the FBI to find the killers, and the subsequent trials and media circus marked the defining end of Elle's childhood innocence. 30 years later, living in Los Angeles, writing for various television shows, including several police procedurals, Elle receives an email from Karen's brother notifying her that one of the killers is up for parole. Asked to write a letter encouraging the parole board not to set him free, Elle realizes that before she can write a letter condemning a man she's never met, she must also investigate the hard truths of her own past family who never really spoke of the devastating effect the murder of her young cousin had on any of them with secrets of their own and a complicated father she never truly understood. The officer's daughter is the story of a family, a terrible tragedy, and the power and ultimately the freedom of forgiveness. So I was inspired to write this book. Actually, I think I've always been trying to write this book ever since the incidents in the book happened. Karen's murder has been a story that obviously has stayed with me my entire life. I've always thought about it, gone back to it. I feel like for me, the incidents in the book and Karen's murder were kind of my loss of innocence as a child. So it's something that I've always wanted to write about. But I would say I was compelled to write about this after trying to pitch it as a television series because I'm a TV writer by trade. I had wanted to pitch a show in the vein of the show like The Killing that followed one murder over the course of a series. And I thought that Karen's murder would be an interesting television show and would afford me the opportunity to kind of explore it in more depth. 
I created a pitch around it and went out with it to a number of producers. And I should say that this was pre the show Empire. So this was around 2012. Every producer who I sat down with was really interested in the story, thought it would make an interesting show, but across the board said one of the issues that they felt they would have with selling it would be that none of the networks would want to do a show about a Black family. And would I be interested in changing the characters to a white family or maybe including a white police officer? And I said, no, (laughs) I couldn't imagine doing that because it was such a personal story for me. So I said no. And when I relayed this, these notes that I was constantly getting back to my agents and representatives, they were like, you know, it's such a fantastic story. And they knew that I was interested in writing prose and writing a book. They were like, why don't you write a book about it? But then they also said, and we'll get you a (laughs) ghostwriter. That kind of fueled my fury that somebody else would be telling my story just really lit a fire under me. From there, that's when I enrolled in classes at UCLA Extension Writers Program and really just set out to try to figure out how to write a memoir. I didn't even really know what a memoir was, so I knew I had to learn how to do it and how to tell the story the right way. And I was really interested in doing justice to the story and getting it down in a particular way that would honor Karen and would honor what had happened, be really brutally honest and truthful about what I went through as a result of of this incident. So that was kind of the thing that really sparked me to keep going and to finish this. I really had to kind of take the leap of faith that not only would I be able to finish it, but no matter how long it took, I was going to hang with it until I got it down. A lot of the scenes in the memoir, when they happened to me, were so vivid and were scenes that have stuck with me throughout all of my life. I figured, you know, the best place to begin would be to go to the beginning of it for me, which was when I heard that Karen was murdered as I was in the car with my mother driving to an SAT class on a Saturday morning. I really thought the book was about that two-week period and when the police were looking for the boys who were involved and then eventually found them. So it was really about a very specific period of time, which I learned is great for memoir because memoir, unlike autobiography, is about a particular incident in a person's life. It's not memoirs, you know, covering your whole life. And I'm certainly not a well enough known person for anyone to care about my life story. So focusing in on a particular incident and how that incident would allow me to look at the rest of my life through that lens and how it affected me. It seemed like Karen's story was really going to fit perfectly within those kind of guidelines. In terms of the final structure of the book, it took me about five or six years to write this. And so during that whole period of time, the structure was shifting. I was constantly redoing outlines to try to figure out the best way to unfold and tell the story. It was as a result of being in the class learning how to write a memoir and kind of coming to understand that I was telling one story. The book was about a specific incident, but it was really about something else. And so trying to figure out what the really about (laughs) was, you know, the cathartic journey of writing a memoir and writing a memoir like this. When I was in classes, I would just 
pick off the chapters as they happened in a chronological order. And then at a certain point, I realized I was going to have to start doing more in-depth research, not just relying on my memories, but that I really needed to figure out more specifics about what had happened. And I was very interested in figuring out about the so-called FBI manhunt to find the boys when one of the boys left New York to go to Anaheim, California. I figured I would have to get those FBI files and really dive deep into that. I never ended up getting the FBI files because I found that I could access the court transcripts as well as the parole hearing transcripts. And those became absolutely essential to the structure of the book and how I put together telling the story. While I was in the middle of writing this, something else happened, which was my cousin, Karen's brother, got in touch with me via email and asked if I would write a letter to the parole board. And of course, I knew that the parole board was an ongoing thing that was happening. I would frequently think about that and the fact that one of the boys was still in prison, the boy who had pulled the trigger. When my cousin asked me to write this letter, it really just kind of sent a flood of emotions through me because I wasn't sure what I was going to say. I wasn't sure how I felt about that. And it just took me on a whole other journey that started to open up how I was feeling about writing about Karen in the first place. And through that request, that's when I really realized I needed to find out so much more about the boys who were involved and the whole process. And that's when I got in touch with the Department of Corrections in New York and requested the parole transcripts, which took a long time to get to me. I mean, I think they kind of dribbled in over the course of two or three years. I actually never found the true trial transcript that was unavailable. And apparently, I think there had been either a flood at the court building and they couldn't find it. Also, there had been multiple court reporters working on the case and the files were in complete disarray and they couldn't find all of them. And when I went to the courts to try to get them, they kind of refused to give them to me because they said they were in such disorder that it would only be confusing to me and they didn't want it to you know, misrepresent the events in any way. So I was never able to get the full trial transcript. What I did get was... 900 pages of the pre-trial transcript, which was included all of the kind of motions and various hearings that they had before the trial even started. And that was incredibly useful and illuminating and provided me with all kinds of details that I otherwise would not have known about. And in fact, the details were probably better than the actual trial transcript because they included things that were not said in front of a jury. They included things that would not be included in the trial. And so that was incredibly useful for me, just learning about what had happened. And that also came to inform the structure of the book in terms of how I was going to tell this story. I started to realize that part of the story was obviously my engagement with it and how I felt about the events but also the actual events itself, the things that I could not have known about because I wasn't there, like the trial or what happened during the incident, which I, of course I couldn't have known about except for reading the parole board transcripts and hearing the, the boys, now men, talk about it. Those things really kind of helped to morph the structure over time. And as I was delving into this and trying to really be honest about my feelings about the incident, I realized that 
there was another part of it creeping in, which was my relationship with my father. And so that became another prong of the structure, just my dealing with the very kind of internal things that were going on with me and my family and how that changed my feelings within my family. So the book went from being something that was really specific to that two-week period to kind of expanding into other stories that helped me drill down on what the ultimate theme of the book is, which is forgiveness and how do we forgive other people? How do we forgive ourselves? And also, are we judging people based on the worst incident of their lives? How do you judge people truly for what they've done or who they are? Writing the first draft took a very long time, partly because I was in classes where you could really only submit sometimes eight or 16 pages at a time. So if I had an idea for a chapter that exceeded that, it was really (laughs) tough to kind of just bring it in in chunks and try to work on it that way. I realized that because I didn't know what a memoir was and that I was really learning how to write one and learning how to write prose to begin with. I mean, I'm a television writer by trade, that's my career, And it's very helpful in terms of writing dialogue, in terms of writing in scene, but in terms of putting together the narrative of a prose book, even a memoir, I felt like I really didn't have the skills. So being in class was essential for me and just kind of slogging it through each chapter, having kind of a rough outline and then just going through those chapters and trying to relive that experience and get it down on the page in a way that I felt was accurate, but also emotional. I really wanted people to feel the story the way that I felt it. One of the things that I learned by being in class was to kind of keep daily pages, to keep a notebook and just write for 10 or 15 minutes every morning and put down my thoughts on the chapter that I was writing about, or my thoughts on the theme, or my thoughts on the people involved, just to really get my senses and my memories flowing in a kind of unhampered way. And I would do this longhand in a spiral bound notebook and kind of just force myself to keep writing, like keep your hand on the page, keep moving and keep it going just to let everything come out in an uncensored way, which is very different from sitting down at your computer and trying to write a chapter where you are definitely crafting it and thinking about the word choice, the sentence structure, how you're structuring even the flow of the chapter, you kind of get a little stuck in your head. You can also get very writerly in a way that's not helpful, you know, falling in love with your words when it's not helping to serve, tell the story in a way. So doing those two things, I think, provided a really nice balance for me and helped me to always move forward, to always feel like even though I may be facing a blank page, writing by hand allowed me to just freely put down thoughts and it didn't have to be perfect. So by the time I turned to the computer, I always had notes that I could draw from, something that I could say, oh, well, you know, this page is just full of crap generally, but here's a really nice sentence or here's a really great thought that I think I can expound on. It also helps just in terms of letting your subconscious run free and go to places that you can't really force yourself to go to thematically. You know, you don't want to force it. You want it to kind of come out of what you're talking about in a natural way. So that was really helpful to my process. 
another part of my process, because I do have a full-time job writing on television shows, was to make sure that I always got my writing in. And I made it a point to set aside a very small amount of time, knowing that if I was engaged enough, it would expand. So I always said to myself, I'm only going to write for 15 minutes a day. That's all I have to do. You just have to show up and sit down and get to work on this. And usually 15 minutes turned into half an hour, more often than not an hour, hour and a half sometimes. And I would do this first thing in the morning. I like to say for myself that I would give my best writing time to myself and my own projects. So for me, that meant getting up at three or four in the morning and just sitting down to do this. And I loved being up early when it's quiet, when it feels like, you know, nothing's happening. The world is still, it feels to me like I'm stealing time in a way that I'm getting away with something. And so that almost makes it even more fun and important to do because I feel like I'm going to, ha, you know, I'm going to sit down and write now and nobody can stop me. I'm just going to sit down and do this knowing that I'd done it, you know, that I'd accomplished it and leaving at a point where I felt like it would be good to go back to knowing where I was going to pick up the next day. And it really helped to kind of have the daily pages as something that I could always fall back on. And as I got more and more into the process, it, it also helped knowing that I had these kind of incoming documents, the court trial transcripts, the parole board hearing transcripts, just even doing research about the time period. I tried to be faithful to my memories first and not kind of supplement it with what maybe my mother had remembered or what other people had said. So I tried to always start with my memories. Once I'd gotten that down on the page, kind of flesh them out with research. So I did some research into my high school. I fortunately had held on to a lot of pages of keepsakes and mementos. So like I had all of my schedule from high school, you know, these little kind of like index card size colorful cards that had when I went to English or social studies. And I had that for all four years of high school, which is ridiculous. I had all the playbills from the plays that I was in. And I had my high school yearbook, which was really interesting to see what people had written about me and to kind of juxtapose that with my memory of my high school experience and look at what people said about me, what people remembered. And that helps kind of spark memories in me of certain things that help to really flush out the pages when I, I'm back in my high school days and back in high school. That helped me with the writing. I just had all of these kind of either research or writing tricks or external prompts to help me keep going in the process. Getting to a first draft, I think I had about 150 pages where I was still really focusing on kind of the murder itself and the incident with Karen. And I took those first pages and sent them to an editor, another writer who also worked as an editor, a former UCLA teacher named Jeannie Nash. And I was really excited to get her feedback. Um, and I, I think it took her, I mean, I want to say it took her about a month to read and do extensive notes. And she sent me an email and talked to me on the phone and her notes were essentially like, I know this is not what you want to hear, but I have to be brutally honest with you and say that it's not there. Like if you are writing this 
to write it for yourself. That's one thing. And of course, that's something that no writer ever wants to hear. And she also said, if you were writing this, you know, as, as something just internally for your family members, that's fine too. But in terms of something that you would want to get published, you have to really drill down on your theme. You have to really figure out why you're telling this story and what it's about. You're going to have to dig deeper. I'm used to getting brutal notes from television executives, studio executives and network executives, but it's really different when you're getting that kind of brutally honest feedback on something that's so personal to you. And it really kind of knocked me back on my heels. And I was like, all right, I've got to really figure out how to get in there and make this story come to life for people who don't know it, don't know me, don't know my family, and, and why would they care? That kind of sent me back to the drawing board and back to looking at my outline and figuring out really how I was going to do this. And I would say that was about, I'm going to say that was probably about two years into the process, two years into taking workshops and having individual chapters get praise and getting great notes on individual chapters, but realizing that the whole thing kind of put together wasn't coming together the way I needed it to. That kind of note of like, you really need to be clear about what this is really about kind of sent me in a whole other direction of looking at what is it that I'm trying to say and how do all of these different stories, these three kind of different stories that I've identified of the incident you know, how that incident changed me within my family and my family dynamic and what happened with the boys who were involved. How do those things all come together and what connects all of them? Interestingly enough, you know, it was all kind of there right in front of me from the beginning. The fact that my father was a parole officer, the fact that I was being asked to consider parole for this crime and the fact that it all hinged on the idea of forgiveness really helped me solidify that as being the story that I was telling. And once I kind of got that in my head, it made it a lot easier to track the story in a different way, to kind of unfold it in a way that that would make sense to someone who wasn't familiar with it, who didn't have the shorthand of knowing the details. That was really helpful to my process. Another part of my process, but then I quickly realized that I needed to get into a workshop situation where I could do more than eight or 16 pages at a time. So I applied to a couple of workshops and I thought, well, you know, if you're going to take a workshop, why not take a workshop someplace fun and out of the country? So I applied to Sirenland, which is a fabulous um, week-long workshop that Danny Shapiro teaches in Positano, Italy on the Amalfi Coast, like what better place to go and workshop your work. And it was really just, I was in a, in a memoir class with I believe 15 other writers with Danny Shapiro. That was incredibly helpful to get fresh eyes on my pages and also to get the kind of insight, outsider insight into how to reveal the story. One of the things that I learned that was really helpful was the idea of the rate of reveal, you know, how quickly or slowly you dish out the information for the audience, the way that you do it, where to do it. And that was just incredibly helpful with a story like this, which in some ways unfolds kind of like a mystery. And so that was really helpful to me. I also took another fantastic writing workshop with the Cuba Writers Program. So we went to Cuba for two weeks and workshopped our pages, which was, 
again, it was just great to be in workshops with writers who didn't know me. And that became very important as well, just to be surrounded by people who didn't know me, didn't know my story so that I could really judge whether what I was putting on the page was having an impact and, and having an impact in the way that I wanted it to. I started taking a bunch of workshops. I also did a workshop with Erica Schickel, who was the memoir teacher who I started with. You know, I started in her beginning memoir class and I took her intermediate class and then her advanced class. And I took that advanced class many, many times. Then she also had her own kind of writer's workshop that I took part in, which was just great to keep me going. And I think the workshops were really helpful for about the first two or three years. And then I just got to a point where it's like, okay, now you need to hunker down, be by yourself and figure this out and take all of the tools that I acquired, all of the prompts, the notes, you know, the insights that I'd gotten and really try to apply them on my own and try to be merciless on my own writing in the way that I had learned to be on other people's pages. And that was also incredibly helpful, reading other people's work in progress and being able to help other people see what they were missing. I had to start doing that on my own and start turning you know, that eye onto my own pages. At about the third or fourth year of this, that's when I really just kind of was alone in a room, working it through and figuring all of this stuff out. And that actually also happened to coincide with the time when I finally had gotten all of the parole hearing transcript pages. I now had pages and pages of documents, official documents that I had looked at and read, but honestly, reading them was so emotional for me. It was really difficult that I decided I would kind of wait until I got the whole thing together. And then I sat down and just read through the entire transcript of the parole board hearings for each of the individual boys who was involved with the incident. And then I had hard copies and I didn't want to mark them up, but I did want to highlight things that were relevant to what I was writing, relevant to how I was feeling and relevant to my overall theme. And so I went page by page, retyped in a separate document any statement or any turn of phrase, anything from those parole board hearing transcripts, I typed them up into a whole separate document for each of the boys who was involved. And so I ended up with three separate sets of notes of my own that I could look at and move around on my computer and say, okay, well here, this is all about what happened that night. Here are all the sections that are about what happened later. Here are all the sections where they admit things that I didn't know. And here's all the stuff where I thought the crime had happened one way, but it turns out it happened differently than I had thought. And so I was able to kind of move things around and categorize them and organize them in any kind of way. And that was really helpful also to figuring out how to tell the story. As I keep saying, it's such a personal story, but to learn the truth about what happened, to learn things that I didn't know was very emotional. And I think that also played into how I wrote the story. To learn for me, one of the things that was, I don't wanna say satisfying, but almost a relief, I had always been told growing up that Karen was standing at the counter when she was killed. And so to me, she saw it coming. It was something that she maybe knew was going to happen because the gun was in her face. 
to read and find out that the truth of it was that she was face down on the floor, that she never would have seen the gun was in a weird way, oddly a relief to me to think that she didn't know. And there was some comfort in that. I think I finally felt like I had a draft or was close to a draft that was in the place that I wanted it to be about four years in. There were still chapters that I hadn't written that I felt like I couldn't write only because I just didn't want to go there. <laughs> there, I just did not want to think about the incidents involved. I did not want to put myself back in that place. So I kept avoiding them, you know, and I would just start a chapter and put, you know, this chapter goes here and just leave it there, knowing that I would have to come back to it at some point. I felt like I had a draft that was working once I had gone through all of the parole board hearing transcripts and kind of sifted through and told the individual stories of the three boys who were involved and kind of gotten those into chapter form in a way that felt like it was telling their stories, but that I was also giving my honest reactions to it. I also finally got through the kind of 900 page pre-trial court transcript and pulled out again, doing the same thing of like typing up for myself in a separate document, what I thought was important, what I wanted to talk about, because I felt like I wanted to have a chapter that went into the things that I couldn't know, like the conversations between the family members of the boys who were involved, the conversations with the lawyers, all of the things that I wouldn't have been able to know or been privy to except later on in life. I kind of wrote that chapter and I felt like I had a draft that was working in terms of how I wanted to tell the story. What was not working so well at that point was my, was my narrator and my protagonist. And, you know, when you're writing memoir, you learn that you, you know, the person who the story is about, are telling it through the lens of two different people. There's the protagonist, the person who went through it, who you are writing about, who is you. And then there is the narrator, you know, who is the writer, who is telling the story about the person who is also you. It gets very confusing. For me, I felt like I wanted my narrator to feel very close. And I had, again, you know, this all goes back to having incredible teachers and people helping you along the way. Samantha Dunn, I was in one of her essay writing classes, but she always talks about how important it is when you're writing and when you are the narrator to bring the reader close, to make it feel as much like you are whispering in their ear as possible. And I didn't feel like I had necessarily achieved that with my narrator. And so I, I went back over it and kind of took another look at the story from the lens of the narrator is me now writing it from the perspective of somebody who's been asked to write a letter to a parole board and deciding whether or not I'm going to do that. But I'm looking back on myself, the super emotional teenager who was involved with this, whose relationships changed as a result of this incident. And I just wanted to make sure that those two voices, the protagonist, you know, as a young girl and the narrator as an 
older woman looking back who's processed all of this, I wanted to make sure that those two voices with each other, that they also felt different from each other, that you could get a sense that there was growth and more understanding in the narrator than there was in the protagonist. And so I, I kind of had to do a draft that looked more closely at those voices and making sure that those voices were where I wanted them to be as well. And I definitely, you know, as much as we all work on computers, I still am tied to printing things out. I have to make revisions and changes on the page. For me, if I can't see it in front of me on a piece of paper, it's really hard for me to kind of make those, those changes on a computer. So, you know, I would print out chapters and actually lay out every single page across my dining room table so that I could not only just read it, but also see it in a sense, kind of like a, like a blueprint, just see how it all laid out and see physically, okay, well, over here in the corner, you know, the top left-hand corner, I say this, and then down in the middle of the chapter, so I could physically see where these things were happening. So that's kind of how I would do my revisions. I would spread it all out on my dining room table and handwrite changes and then go and take that chapter and sit in front of the computer and make further changes. And sometimes when I'm sitting in front of the computer, you know, you, you change things even more. They get a little bit more fluid, you know, it, it kind of smooths out in a way that maybe the handwritten notes are dashed off because it's, I still can't write as fast as I think, whereas I feel like I can type as fast as I think. That was my process getting to a draft that still had, I would say, about four chapters missing, but felt to me like a finished draft. And then because workshops had been so integral to my process, I found a workshop through an organization called Writing by Writers. And then they had a workshop that was called Boot Camp, where you could submit a finished manuscript be in a group of five people with an instructor and just give each other feedback and get feedback. So I applied for that and missed the deadline or rather by the time the workshop was supposed to happen, I felt like I, I really wasn't ready. I really wanted to try to knock out those other chapters and I, and I wasn't able to do it. So I postponed by that point, I think I only had two chapters <laughs> that I couldn't bear to write. And so I, you know, workshopped the manuscript and got incredible feedback and it really helped me, push me to be able to write those two last chapters that I just couldn't base. And then I, I think I spent, you know, I, I want to say it took about another six months to actually write those last chapters and get it together to a point where I felt like, okay, I can now send this in and, you know, try to look for an agent, try to look for somebody who would get that, what I was doing and, and want to represent this. When it came time for me to start sending the manuscript out and basically looking for an agent, I did my research, as I think most people do, you know, it's like you're looking online, you're reading poets and writers, you're trying to figure out which agents would be best for you, best for your book which of course means picking the books off your shelves that you love and trying to see in the acknowledgements, you know, who represents those writers and who you think would be a good fit for you. I came up with a list, but also included in that list because I'm already a television writer and I had representation at the time for my TV work. 
I had also talked to the book agents at my agency. And I actually spoke with them very early on in the process, actually before I'd even started writing the memoir, before I'd even started taking classes. And it was just a thought of something I wanted to do. I'm obviously in a privileged position because of having written for television and having my TV agents. They were able to get me a meeting with the book agents in New York you know, totally different breed of people, you know, and, 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 you know, you rarely cross lines, but so they agreed, I'm sure only because I was a TV writer at the agency to take a meeting with me. And they sat down with me and listened to me babble on about this memoir that I wanted to write. And I had other ideas for books that I wanted to write and things that I was going to do. And they were very encouraging and said, great. I also asked them, would it be better if I wrote a proposal for this? You know, should I try to sell it ahead of time? And they gave me the best advice ever, which was, if you sell it ahead of time, you're going to be writing somebody else's book. You're better off just writing it. So just write it. So I went away and just wrote it and and kept in touch with him. I think I maybe sent them a chapter here and there during the process. But once I had a draft that I was finished with that I knew I wanted to send out and I had this list of other agents that I was going to send to, I, I started to, you know, formulate a query letter, you know, looking for your comps, books that are similar to your book that you think you can compare it to if they've done well in terms of sales. So I took a month to like craft a really good general query letter and then picked out the agents who I thought would be best for me and made it more specific to them, you know, tried to find out more about who those people were, what they were really interested in to make sure that I was in line with that. And also included in that, this book agent who I had met through my TV agency. What ended up happening is I I sent the first two letters out to the book agent who was already at my agency and another agent who I had met during the course of writing this at one of the workshops. And so I sent out two query letters first and Eric Simonoff, who is my agent now, who was the agent at WME where I was represented for television said, great, it's, you know, congratulations and actually having written it. He said he'd be interested in reading the manuscript. So I sent it to him. He read it very quickly and wanted to meet with me. And so (laughs) that kind of ended up, I ended up wanting to be represented by Eric. I was, you know, we met for, I happened to be in New York the weekend that he actually finished it. And so we sat down at lunch and, and talked and that was it. Basically, I did hear back, interestingly enough, from the other agent who I had queried, who she wanted some changes to it. She actually was not happy with the narrator's voice, which I had worked really hard to get in a particular way. And so she liked the book, but she wanted me to take a pass at the narrator's voice. And I said no, because I, you know, it was exactly the way I wanted it and went with Eric Simonoff, who has been a wonderful agent and a wonderful representative for me. The process of submitting the book to editors was definitely nerve wracking. I mean, it's one of those things where you realize this is it. You're going to go out with it or you feel like this is it. That's that's how it feels because that's not true. (laughs) The process doesn't end until you stop it, basically. 
Eric and I had decided to take the book out over a holiday weekend at the end of the summer. And I should say before we took the book out, I did three drafts of rewrites for Eric. The book started in a totally different way. And Eric, I correctly identified that it needed to start with the most impact possible and, and had me rewrite it to the way it starts now. I have to say at the time, I was kind of attached to how the book was starting. And so my hackles were up and I didn't want to change it. However, this is where my TV training kicked in. And, you know, when you get notes in television, you do them. <laughs> if you're smart, you at least try them to see if they work or not before you say, no, it doesn't work. And that's always been kind of my approach with television. If someone gives you a note, try it, see if you can make it work. And if you can't, then you can legitimately say it doesn't work, but you have to try it. And so when I got this note of changing the opening of the book and immediately tightened up, I remembered <laughs> that, yes, you have to try it. You have to at least try it. And he was right, much better beginning to the book. So I did about three different edits for Eric. We got it ready to go out after the holiday weekend in September. He had identified, God, I'm not sure how big of a list he had. I want to say it was about 20, maybe 25 editors to send it to. He sent it out and then we waited. <laughs> and I think, I want to say it took about two weeks to hear back from people. And we had about three interested editors, which was great. I was excited to have three people who really seemed to understand it. And I spoke to all of them. The process was they'd read it and then I would be put in touch with them and, and have a conversation with them about what they thought, the changes they would be looking for, you know, what they felt the book was about. And I spoke with one editor who seemed to kind of want me to push it more in a direction of exploring who I am now, maybe getting a little bit more into the, the TV side of it. You know, my career as a TV writer, putting a little bit more of that into it. And I definitely wasn't interested in that. And I think that ultimately that editor was looking for a different kind of book than what this was. I spoke to another editor who kept referring to it as a first draft. And that really scared me <laughs> because I felt like this is not a first draft. This is really far from a first draft. And then I spoke with Sarah Nelson at HarperCollins, who really got the book, really understood what I was trying to do, what I felt it was about. Sarah had also written her own memoir. And so I loved the idea that this was an editor who was also a writer who would understand, even though you say this is a little note, you know, this is not a little note, that it's, it involves way more than what you're saying. And I loved her memoir. I thought it was great and had great humor. So I was really excited. So I signed on with Sarah at HarperCollins. The process of working with Sarah started pretty quickly. She gave me her initial set of notes 
To be honest, she didn't have substantial notes in terms of the structure of the book or adding or changing chapters that much. I think the vast majority of Sarah's notes on the book were to make trims, to make things more concise. I think we've worked a lot on the chapters surrounding the parole transcripts and tightening that up because I think they were a lot longer before with a lot more detail. And so she had me trim those back to kind of just the essentials. And I think a lot of the changes that Sarah suggested were in the area of just honing down and making things more concise. It was interesting because she made a point of saying to me, understanding that I came from a television writing background, you don't have to do these changes. These are suggestions. And I was like, really? <laughs> Is that true? Okay, that's interesting. But I really felt like, obviously, she's been doing this a long time. She's the professional. I'm going to listen to her suggestions and try to do everything I can to make this the best book possible. So she gave me a first set of changes, which I made. And I thought, okay, great. We got through that. Now, what's the next step? After she read the rewrite, she came back to me with yet another set of changes, tightening up also an idea for expanding a little bit more about the feelings of Black law enforcement, because that's a part of the book as well. She wanted a little bit more about that. And I thought, okay, I'll try to figure out what my feelings are about that and include that in it. So I did those changes and handed them in. And I thought, great, we're on our way can't wait. And then she came back to me and had another set of changes, which ended up being a final set of changes. But it was just, it was surprising to me. And I, I think this is probably part and parcel of being at the end of the process and just being not anxious, but ready for it to be over. It's like you'd spent so much time on this book and done so many rewrites and revisions and gotten it to a place where I, I really liked it. So Every set of revisions was kind of like, oh, aren't we there yet? Like, isn't it, isn't it there yet? So we did about three sets of revisions to get it to a place where she was happy with it and Harper's was happy with it. And I think that, I want to say that took, let's see, that was about the end of September into the following February or March. Then you're into kind of the copy edits, a little bit more of the fact checking you know, certain things came back that needed to be clarified. You're reading it just to make sure that everything is factual and accurate and grammatically correct. And also, you know, there's an issue with the book of, for me in particular, I mean, I think anybody who reads the book will realize that this is a story that my mother did not want me to tell. I dedicated it to her with an apology asking for forgiveness because it was as I said to her, and I tried to explain, you know, even though this is my story, an incredible personal story to me, it includes parts of your marriage. And I tried to be respectful and to only really delve into things as they affected me to not be telling her story. Um, certainly not like my sister's story. My sister was at college when this happened and I could have included more of her, but I felt like that's not my place. It's my story. It's not her story. As you're getting through the final copy edits, it's like, this is your last chance to make sure that you are honoring and being respectful of the other people involved with this. And so I, I kind of combed through and made sure to, to take out things that 
that to me felt like, okay, I'm straying into territory that's veering off of myself. It's relevant to me, but maybe it involves somebody else too much. So I want to pull that back. I don't want to put that out there. That's their story. It's not really my story to tell. So that was another part of the edit, really combing through and making sure that I'm being respectful to the other people who might've been involved in this. And then, you know, you get to a point where there are no more changes and you can't touch anything <laughs> and it's just too late. You know, that's it. It's in there, which is an amazing feeling and incredibly liberating and satisfying to know that it's out there and to know that you did it and you finished it. If I could give any advice in terms of writing memoir, I would definitely say that you have to be brave. I know that sounds cliche, but that you have to be willing to explore your own feelings, that you have to really be open to taking the journey and finding out and discovering things about yourself that you may not have known. You have to be open to discovering that the truth is not always what you think it is, that your memories are imperfect and that, you know, it's a journey. Just writing a memoir is definitely a journey in and of itself. I also feel like there were certain points when I was writing this book where I had such amazing insights and revelations about myself and it felt really cathartic to go through this, to tell this story, to kind of relive the events with the perspective of time and more wisdom and experience. I mean, that made for an incredible journey that I think really just helped me as a person and a human being. But that's not to say that there's necessarily closure, quote unquote, you know, it's still a story that I live with. I just live with it in a different way. And it's made me think about things in my life in a different way. But I feel like that's helped me get to another level. That's helped me as a person, but certainly as a writer, be able to move on and to kind of tackle other writing projects with a certain amount of confidence and ability to approach a project and think at the outset, I have no idea if I can do this, but I do know that I am going to do this. <laughs> you know, to, to just understand that having done it, what it takes to get through it. And if you're willing to go through that again, then no matter how long it takes, no matter how painful it is, no matter how difficult it is that you can get through all of that, you just have to keep going and you just have to start. And I think the best advice that I could give for people in terms of writing, you know, writing anything, do it every day. Like they say, it's a muscle and you have to work it. You have to exercise and practice. So do it every day, but don't make it impossible for yourself. When I hear people saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to try and write for an hour, two hours a day. I'm like, that's way too much. Like, don't do that to yourself. Just try and write a sentence. Like, think about it for 15 minutes. If you do that every day, it may take you a while, but you will, you will get there. And more likely than not, you will spend more than 15 minutes doing it. But, you know, don't berate yourself for not doing an hour. Just make it simple and make it something that's manageable that you actually will do. And now, a reading from The Officer's Daughter. 
When I was 16, my 16-year-old cousin Karen Marsh had her face blown off by a sawed-off shotgun in a robbery gone awry at a local Burger King in the Bronx. Her brother Warren Marsh asked me to write a letter against granting parole for Karen's killer, Santiago Ramirez. After Karen was killed, I decided there was no God. I was in charge of my life, my destiny. I was in control. I was God, except for one thing. Everyone dies, everyone, including sometimes beautiful and smart 16-year-old girls with their whole lives ahead of them. Maybe Karen died sooner than she should have, but maybe she would have walked out of that Burger King and been run over by a bus. Maybe she would have found out that she had cancer and died anyway. And then who would we blame? Not Santiago Ramirez, the man who pulled the trigger. He said it was an accident. He'd never handled a sawed off shotgun before. He didn't mean to kill her, but he fled to California because he knew the only thing worse than killing a cop was killing a cop's child, which Karen was. Her father was a decorated homicide detective. My father was a parole officer and Santiago Ramirez was right. If the Daily News had not printed his side of the story, and if the FBI had not brought him back safely, my uncle and my father would have found him and killed him. More death, more dying, more families ruined, more pain, but not for Karen. Karen died instantly, shot at point blank range. With one blast, it was over. The rest of us are the ones who are in pain. And now that Santiago Ramirez is up for parole, 33 years later, it's like we are a bloody open wound all over again. We aren't asking the parole board to punish Santiago Ramirez for Karen. We're asking the parole board to punish him for us, for the pain we continue to live with every day, because for the family, it's not over. Memories of Karen surface on her birthday and mine. Then again, on the day she was killed, on the day she was buried, on the day Santiago Ramirez was caught, and on the day he went to trial. And now there will be a new day, the day Santiago goes before the parole board. I'll be forced to remember this new day until his application for parole is accepted or if rejected for the rest of his life or ours, whichever ends first. Because death is the only way this pain ends unless we can somehow figure out how to forgive. I once heard it said that forgiveness is being able to accept that you can't change the outcome. I've heard people say, don't put a question mark where God has put a period, but I am God, so I should be able to stop this, to forgive, if for no other reason than not forgiving hurts only me. I don't know how to forgive Santiago Ramirez, but I know it's not going to happen as long as I exercise my power to keep him locked up. As long as he is inside, I'm invested in his worthlessness and the idea that he was a bad person who took a good life. He'll never be able to replace Karen's life. He'll never accomplish what we would like to believe Karen would have or could have, but we should make him try. He owes us a good life, a life as good as the one Karen would have lived, a life spent trying, working hard, being better. I say let Santiago Ramirez out and let him live up to that. Let him out and let's see if I can start to forgive because it truly is madness to continue this way with no end in sight. I know this is not the letter my cousin Warren expected me to write, but we know from Karen's death that life is full of the unexpected and learning to deal with the unexpected is what life is about. Karen never had that chance, we do. 
I submit this letter to the parole board so that Mr. Ramirez, my cousin Warren, and I can finally be set free. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. The Writers Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.